Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain on the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. On the 1st and the 2nd of July this year, I managed to finally get to the hallowed ground that is Old Warden, home of the Shuttleworth Collection one of the greatest collections of vintage aviation in the world. I'd always wanted to go there, and I'd always wanted to see an air show there. I got to see an air show on the 2nd, but on the 1st of July, I got a tour of the uh, Airfield and Museum from well-known aviation photographer, Darren Harbour. 
My intention with Shuttleworth was to record an interview with some of the engineers there, and I was all set up. Unfortunately, due to a rail strike, my pre-booked ticket got cancelled on the 3rd, and I had to leave early in order to get to my next destination. So I missed out on that morning with the engineers. Regrettably, that's a gap in the planned episodes. But however, I did manage to get an interview with Darren, and I also caught up with Steve Darlow and George Dunn, and also David Bremner. So this episode, I'm calling Conversations from Shuttleworth. It's a few interviews that I got at Old Warden over those two days. But sadly, representatives from the actual museum are missing from it. Maybe one day I'll manage to get an interview with someone from there. But to start off, here's a chat I had with Darren Harbour. Well, I am at Old Warden, uh, Shuttleworth, and sitting in the Swiss Garden with Darren Harbour. Hi, Darren. Hi, nice to see you over here, Dave. It's really good to meet you after all the years we've known each other online. Absolutely. And uh, Darren's just given me a, a look around the Shuttleworth collection and uh, also the Swiss Garden here. And we're preparing for the big air show tomorrow. Um, Darren, t- how did you get involved with this place? Um, I, I guess my first association with Shuttleworth was as a child. Um, my dad used to take me to air shows, and this is one of the places he, he brought me to. Yep. I still remember it to this day. Uh, I remember buying some some half-made plastic kits by the tower on the stall there, and uh, that was one of my, my earliest memories of coming to Shuttleworth. Um, since then, um, since I got more into aviation, the older I got, I, um, I decided that um, I needed to move somewhere that was closer to where my main work was. Yep. So I was brought up in Oxfordshire, um, not too far south of Oxford, um, then moved to a place called Reading before, um, then kind of working in the Reading area, but I wanted to live somewhere which could maybe progress my aviation well. So I chose to move to a place called Biggleswade, which isn't too far down the road from Old Warden, which yeah. is where we are here today. And ever since I moved to Biggleswade, I started to come here much more regularly, um, but also Duxford isn't too far from here, and uh, moving up into Lincolnshire and places like that are all very accessible from here. So hence why I've got more involved in Shuttleworth, and over the years got more and more involved in Shuttleworth to the point where I probably spend too much time here. <laughs> How can you have too much time in Enfield? I don't think that's possible. No, indeed. I think you're probably fair. Fair comment. Um, I think that it's distracting sometimes that uh, you know, I, I probably should be sat at my desk doing something, but I, I get a call from one of my friends that uh, many of the, you know, the aviation fraternity that I live in this area say, do you want to meet for coffee? And, and I end up here. But as you've experienced yourself, there's a lovely restaurant here and you can yeah. sit out um, and enjoy a cup of tea or coffee and, and actually just watch the aeroplanes on the grass, which is a special place, really. Very special. Uh, this is, as I said to you when we approached in the car, this is hallowed ground, and uh, it's a place I've always wanted to come to, and now I'm here. Uh, I've followed Shuttleworth for decades, you know, and to actually come and experience this, is it's incredible. Um, the field is just beautiful. It's a gorgeous airfield. It is. I mean, it's hallowed turf is the phrase which gets used a lot, and it kind of explains Shuttleworth very well, I think. It's a unique airfield. Yeah. I don't think there is anything across the world which can match Shuttleworth. There are a few places which are possibly similar, but I think you've got an interesting mix here. You've got a beautiful airfield. It's a lovely grass airfield. It's got a lovely, what we call a natural amphitheatre, so it's got a natural slope to it. Um, so if there's an air show here, everyone gets a great view. The displays, as you'll experience tomorrow, are much more... Um, uh, 
closer and more personal than what you might experience somewhere else. Um, Shuttleworth is also very non-commercial, so you don't end up with loads of marquees down the front of the air display, right. so you get to see the action. Um, when there's not an air show on, it's a great place because there's still that kind of real community atmosphere to it. Um, you'll find there are people who just come here, as I say, for coffee quite frequently. The local area, people just come in and call in just to have something to eat because it's got that welcoming feel to it. Um, it's been through some tough times and more recently with COVID. Yeah. Um, that's obviously had a massive impact on Shuttleworth's um, kind of uh, fortunes as such. But um, they've had some challenges over the last few years, which have actually now, I think, been moved beyond. Um, so it's kind of... Um, it's, what was described to me by one of the people that work here is it's a place that moves at a pace which you can never fall over. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, you can be too fast-paced. You can be like Duxford where you're very commercial and you, you have the bang, 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 things must be done. Shuttleworth isn't like that. It's much more relaxed. Um, and it, it ticks over. But it's got an incredibly dedicated team that work here. I work very closely with a lot of them. Um, the engineers are... A family, I think I would describe them as a family. Yeah. Um, even the rest of the team, that, that it's a very much a family atmosphere here, and that's how it runs. Yeah. It's, it's it's very welcoming. I think you know you'll find walking around the hangars that the, there's none of that um, stress. You know, if someone wants to show you an aeroplane, they'll take you through barriers and show you. And you know, it's uh, it's quite a, a, um, an inspirational place to visit. I think, and I think. People have that gobsmack feel. You found that today yep. when you go through Definitely. the hangars. It's like, oh my God, I didn't know all this stuff is here. Because yeah. you've got over 50 different aeroplanes here. Wow. And that's kind of impressive in one yes. collection, over 50 different aeroplanes. And I think when you put that into context with the engineering side of things too, is you've got engineers, a very small team, I forget the exact number, but it's certainly less than 10 full-time engineers yeah. look after 50 different aeroplanes with multiple different engines and different constructions, different types of um, technologies within them. And that's fairly impressive. And well, again, that's unique. And also... Uh so many of those aircraft are the only ones left in the world as absolutely well. <laughs> well you've seen the oldest flying british aeroplane which is the the bristol monoplane um we've got depedus which is the oldest flying aeroplane in the world we've got uh, Bellario, we've got dh88 comet which uh people from uh you know australia new zealand will know from the, the fact that it flew to australia in a, a very short period of time back in 1938 yeah. um and it's the original aeroplane and it's new zealand as well there. Of course it did, yes. Um, so so aeroplanes like that are so unique. Mugol, you know, an aeroplane which flew from the Cape to the UK with uh, Alex Emshaw on the controls. There's so many individual histories in the aeroplanes that are here. Yeah. You know, we've got a, a Spitfire, which has got combat history. We've got a World War One aeroplane, the SE-5, which has got combat history. It's the only flying World War One aeroplane that has a confirmed kill during World War One. Wow. Incredible. And with, yeah, the paperwork for that exists. You can look at it and you can see the, the combat report as a... It's just phenomenal to have aircraft of that nature here. It's got its mix of uh, reproduction aeroplanes, obviously the great uh, um, the, the Edwardians, as we call them, which yeah. took part in the Magnificent Men in the Flying Machines, as yep. many people remember, amongst other films. Um, yeah, having those here, they always are crowd stoppers. Um, lots of aeroplanes built by the um, Northern Aeroplane Workshop, World War One aeroplanes, so Bristol M1C, Tri-Sopper Triplane, um, well, it's got the Camel, um, you know, just aircraft that have been recreated as they were off the drawing board. So yes. they're unique, but then you've got some really odd aeroplanes, like you've got the Lynn Charles aeroplanes, you know, which are, they're bizarre looking aircraft, but they're great. And uh, it's just that variety. You know, you go to somewhere like Duxford, it's all Spitfires and Hurricanes. Yeah. You come here, you've got everything from, you know, a, a Blario through to a Spitfire, but almost, you know, some weird and wonderful types in between. Yeah, very eclectic mix. Absolutely. So uh, you're a photographer. Most people who have heard your name would have uh, seen your photographs online or uh, in books and 
calibers or whatever, everything else. Um, how did you get into that? Good question. Um, goes back to the story I said about going to air shows as a kid. Yep. That got me into to, to airplanes, and my dad bought me a camera when I was probably my early teens, I guess. Started taking pictures at air shows, obviously got into the photography side of things a lot more. Continued to go to the air shows when I was old enough to do it on my own back. Um, uh, just basically really enjoyed taking pictures. Then, um, must have been early 2000s, I guess, I started to think, well, maybe I should get some pictures published. So I, I kind of started sending them into magazines. I got a couple of pictures, you know, in the news stories, that type of thing. Um, and uh, at one Flying Legends Air show, I took a picture of Carolyn Grace landing her Spitfire. And um, just as she was touching it down, um, flaps down, just literally touching the grass. And it became known as In the Flare, that, that particular picture. But I printed it out and gave it to Carolyn. And uh, uh, she loved the picture so much. She said, um, this is really good. Would you love to come and do some pictures for me? And I said, well, of course, I'd love to. Never expected it to be an air-to-air sortie, which is what it actually turned out to be. Yeah. So Karen let me do an air-to-air with her Spitfire, um, which I desperately searched to find a camera airplane to use at that time because I had no idea where to look or what to do. Yeah. Um, and that turned out to be the first ever air-to-air with a warbird. Wow. Um, and uh, it kind of grew from there. So I owe a lot to Karen and Grace. And obviously, you know, as many people are aware Carolyn sadly passed away last year which yeah. was a massive loss to uh, those that knew her very well and uh, I will always um, be in debt to her because without her I wouldn't have got in to do what I do now and uh, I'll always memorize her as, as that person that influenced my career um, so the career has kind of grown a lot since then um, been very very fortunate I've made some amazing contacts and I've got to do some amazing things um, I pinch myself every time I do it because I still don't believe that I should be doing what I do I think it's a, a real honor um, it's a privilege um, you require people's trust a lot and they do trust you to go fly alongside their airplanes everyone always says well how'd you get into air to air um, a lot of hard work a lot of relationship building yes. um, because it's not about how good you are behind the camera it's about how your attitude is towards the people that own these airplanes because yeah. they are very special things old airplanes and to um put one up in the air to be photographed costs a lot of money yes. um and you don't want to waste your time by someone taking a load of rubbish pictures so um that trust element is is how you build the business up and uh, you know i've been really fortunate to to become well known i guess for for what i do and the uh, most important thing for me is i like i hope to like, think people like the pictures because if they like the pictures i'm doing what i've set out to do which is showing people what these aircraft look like in the sky Exactly, exactly. So uh, have, are you one of the rare photographers who's managed to make this a full-time thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, someone said to me, you'll never make a, a lot of money doing that as a job. And they're quite right, you don't. But I don't really care because it's about I love it. Yeah, um, I have the passion and interest yeah. for the old aeroplanes. And I don't make a lot of money doing it. And I never will do. Um, but I don't need to because as long as I pay my bills, then I'm happy. But yes, it is my full-time job. Yeah. Um, I'm very fortunate and I have a really good relationship with the UK um, aviation press and a number of the European titles as well. Yeah. Um, I do my own calendar, sell pictures, and also do photography training days, which I run here at Shutterworth. Um, not just training days, I do experience days too. So an experience day is about getting people up close and personal to airplanes. And we had a conversation earlier where I was explaining that um, one of the things that I'm very fortunate to do is get close to airplanes and be able to touch and feel them. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important that that's shared. 
So therefore, the experience days, which I put together, I do a Spitfire day here and I do a Bomber Command one up at East Kirby, for example. Um, it's about putting people up close and being able to, even like Spitfire day, people sit in the cockpit on the one up at East Kirby, they get to go inside the Lancaster. Right. Um, I'm doing a B-25 one at East Kirby where they're going to sit in the cockpit. And it's about giving people that experience, which I've had the privilege of doing very, very often and allowing others to do that. Um, because to me, when they all walk away and I do a bit of feedback at the end, also they've had the best day ever because they've been up close and personal to me. That means more than anything else absolutely that's fantastic i think a lot of people who are around aviation all the time forget how special it is to the people who are not you know that's i think complacency does creep in mm. um i mean walking through the hangars today i walk past there i mean i've shown you some of the, some of the aircraft in the engineering hangar in particular yeah. and to me i see them all the time yeah. but i don't get complacent because i know that that's very important and yeah. i will make an effort to show people like yourself up close because i know how important that is yeah. there's nothing worse than going somewhere and it's not just me that does that if you andy preston for example one of the engineers here if he sees someone with a camera trying to get a picture of the behind and they can't get a view he'll invite them to the other side of the barrier and they'll take them in and he'll show them right. because People like us appreciate that although you get to do this every single day, other people don't. Yeah. And actually, if you can allow them to be able to do that, then that makes a massive difference to their day. And if they go home having had that special experience, then that's important. So you you have to be conscious of not becoming complacent. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you've got a, a tent set up here. You'll have a stand tomorrow. Um, how do you think that your air show is going to... Um, pan out tomorrow you'll get to see some good flying and, and also maybe a lot of people absolutely I mean Shuttlesworth always gets you some good, great flying because it's a unique venue which has a really close display line so no matter what the item is it's displaying it always looks good um so possibly tomorrow for me is, is is extra special because I've managed to arrange for a Spitfire T517 to come to the show. Um, I did an air-to-air -air with it earlier this year. It flew out of Biggin Hill earlier this year for the first time post-restoration. So Trevor, who um, flies the aircraft for 517 Limited, um, was sort of talking about Shuttleworth. And Shuttleworth have a Czechoslovakian Spitfire, which we have here, which um, AR501. Um, so it thought, well, why don't we get two Czech Spitfires together? So I spoke to Trevor and said, why don't we get your Spitfire along? He said, I'd love to. So I spoke to the collection and said Trevor would like to bring a Spitfire and it's coming tomorrow and it will fly alongside AL501 tomorrow. So we'll have two Czech Spitfires flying together. So things like that are always special. Um, when you when you see an air show where you've had an input to it, that's, that, that's quite a special thing. Yeah. The stall, um, I have the stall at all Shuttleworth um, day shows and I have the stall at Duxford. Again, it's about sharing. I mean, I love people to be able to, to, to purchase the images that I, I take. Um, of course, there's an income opportunity for me. So I'm, I'm not shy to admit that I earn some money from that because I have to pay my bills somehow. Yes. Um, but again, it's about being on the stool. I get people coming and buying stuff and they love to chat. And I've met some amazing people, not just um, you know photography type people, but general members of the public that, you know, people will look at a Spitfire and say, my grandfather used to fly a Spitfire and that, you know, I really want to buy a picture because it rem reminded me of him. Yeah. And those things are really special. So having the stall allows me to do that. And my calendar, which I produce every year, again, I love the thought that people enjoy having on a picture on the wall. So, uh, and I, I've done my calendar on purpose, quite different to what a number of the other photographers do. And it, it's got a variety. And so it's not a warbird calendar. You'll always find a helicopter in there, yeah. um, a vintage helicopter. Yeah. You'll always find something which is non-military in there. You'll always find a jet in there because right. it's about having something which the general public would put on their wall rather than just the warbird enthusiast right right have you got a favorite 
aircraft within okay. the collection? Um, I have a favourite aeroplane, um, which obviously the collection has one of, which is the Hurricane. Okay. Um, my partner calls me Hurricane Harbour. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but the Hurricane's always been my favourite aeroplane since I've been a kid. Um, you know, I, I've loved Hurricanes. Um, very fortunate to fly in the two-seat Hurricane last year, and that was possibly the best day ever. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, for, for me, Hurricanes are the thing. We had seven Hurricanes here a few years back at Shuttleworth, and that was best day ever. Um, yeah, just uh, love the Hurricane. Don't get me wrong, I love other aeroplanes too. Yeah. Uh, I've flown the Spitfire, Mustang, all sorts of other exciting aeroplanes, and I've enjoyed every single one of those. Yeah. But the Hurricane is just something which has been, you know, since a kid. That's, yeah, pretty cool. Mm. Well, I just hope that the weekend stays blue skies and goes well. I think you'll find that the forecast for tomorrow is good. And yeah, I think you'll see a, a great range of aeroplanes flying and uh, hopefully have some nice memories for you to take back to New Zealand. Yeah, well, I'm definitely <laughs> already. I've got plenty. Excellent. Thank you very much. No problem. Well, I'm at uh, Shuttleworth Military Show, and I'm here with Steve Darlow and George Dunn. George Dunn. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> um, yeah, Steve, you're a historian, and you've done a lot of work with uh, Bomber Command history. And George, you're an actual piece of history because you were in Bomber Command. Um, can you tell me a little bit, Steve, to start with, a little bit about the work that you've done over the years with Bomber Command? Yeah, well, it, my grandfather's a Lancaster pilot, um, Halifax is in Lancaster, so that really what got me started oh, about 20 years ago, I think, I published my first book. And then just got very interested in, in the story of Bomber Command and kept writing books and finding stories that hadn't been told before. And, um, and uh, yeah, just, just kept, kept going and, and kept writing the books. And, me, and meeting so many veterans, and, and, and I think that sort of became my mission then, to really capture their stories so that we can publish them and we can keep telling the story. And then got involved with the Bomber Car Memorial, you know, met, don't, don't tell him, but met wonderful people like George. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, keeping it going, and, and I'm, I'm loving, I, I write the books, publish the books, we're working on documentaries now, I was involved with Lancaster, and now we're, we're filming for Mosquito, so... Uh, yeah, keep it going, keeping the memory going. Excellent. And uh, speaking of the mosquito, you actually flew the mosquitoes, didn't you? That's right, yes. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your service during the war? Well, I joined up in uh, 1941, did my training in Canada, came back here, did a refresher course on Oxford's OTU on uh, Wellington's, and then converted on the Halifaxes. Okay. I did a complete tour uh, on Halifaxes in uh, 1943, and then uh, a long spell instructing on Wellingtons, and then decided uh, when they were asking for volunteers for mosquitoes, jumped at the chance and went back on a second tour. Almost, and then the war finished. Right. So, uh, did you have a preference, Halifax or Mosquito? Oh, Mosquito, yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful aircraft, beautiful to fly, did everything you wanted of it. It is, it's, a, it's an amazing aircraft, and uh, I've had the privilege of seeing one flying, and 
it's so good that they're coming back. There's a few more around the world flying now. So. Well, that's right, and I think we're here today with the People's Mosquito. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're working at rebuilding one in this country to get back to flying conditions. So uh, it's, a, it's something we're both passionate about, as you can tell. So we're supporting them, raising money for them, uh, and then hopefully we can get it flying. Hopefully we get it flying in time for this, the documentary we're doing uh, as yeah. well. Yeah, wouldn't that be good? Um, tell me a little bit more about the documentary. I know that I... I there was uh, Spitfire and then there was Lancaster. Yes. This is the third. Yeah, this is the third. So I was involved uh, with Lancaster, which seems to have been a, a great success. And then what was going to be the third one? Well, Mos Mosquito, naturally. Um, and the, currently, currently, we're focusing very hard on getting interviews with the veterans and getting some filming. So, for example, last weekend, a couple of weekends ago, we took George to the de Havilland Museum at uh, uh, near Hatfield, and did some filming with the mosquitoes there. So we're going to capture the vet. We've got about 12, vet 12 veteran testimonies in the in the can already. A um, couple more that we'd like to get done, and then we'll start looking at doing the air-to-air -air, uh, flying and uh, get that done. But let, we, let's get the veterans done now because George is a George is a hundred. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's get those those in. Yeah, we're getting uh, few and far between now, unfortunately. Uh, I'd like to be here when uh, the mozzie flies, but uh, I think that's too much to hope for. But uh, all the time I can do something to help, whilst I'm still here, then I will do. Now, uh, another thing that I know you for, from, uh, George, is you were in the um, TV series on the Spitfire. Uh, the Spitfire factory. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I really enjoyed watching that. And uh, so you got to fly Spitfires as well. Yeah, not until after the war. Yeah. What happened was we were due to go out to Malta to form a Met flight because I finished the war on a Met flight. Yeah. And um, they wanted to, to start a, a, a Met flight in Malta. So we flew 10 crews, 10 Mosquito crews, out in a Sterling Malta. When we got there, they didn't even know anything about us. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> That's the airport. Anyway, we kicked our heels around there for about six weeks, um, doing literally nothing. They, they, they really didn't want to know anything about us. And then they decided they weren't going to form a Met flight after all. So we were all split up. And I finished, uh, finished in uh, Egypt. In the canal zone, Ismailia, and uh, reported to the flight office and said, Well, you know, I've been told them the story. I said, well, What do you do here? So they said, Well, currently we're testing, re renovating the Spitfires and selling them to the Greek Air Force. So I said, Well, I've never flown a single engine aircraft since my Tiger Moth days. Ah, he said, you'll be all right. Just slung, slung the pilot's notes across the desk, said, read that up. And that was it. Because in those days, there was no dual no. Spitfires. So it was just a question of getting in and flying it. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> and uh, what we used to do, that we had a couple of Greek pilots. We used to check them out, hand them over to the Greek pilots to confirmed they were okay. And then when we got about uh, uh, 10 ready, used to fly them across to uh, 
Athens, okay. refueling at uh, Nicosia with a Lancaster escort doing the navigating. Yeah. And that was that was the, and then my last trip in the RAF was bringing a Halifax back from uh, <coughs> from uh, Egypt to this country. <coughs> okay. Okay. Did you uh, carry on flying after the war? No. no. There were <coughs> there were so many of us on the market, and the only airline that was really going was British European. And uh, there were so many of us that I just hung about, couldn't get a job, so I went back to my old firm. <clears throat> so when did you first sort of get involved with what you're doing now, with uh, the remembrance sort of thing? Well, I was a, mem I was, uh, a member of the Air Crew Association at the Burgess Hill Branch, and in 2009 we formed a group within that about 14 of us, uh, going round uh, garden centres and museums and that, and raising funds for the RAF Benevolent Fund. And Steve came down to New Haven, uh, I forget when it was, it would be about 2010, something like, something that, like that, yeah. uh, with his books. And we just went on from there. And I think um, overall, over the years, we raised about 100,000. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They were the forefront of not just raising the money, but raising the profile of the Bomber Command Memorial in London. Yes. Which was opened in 2012. 2012. And a great, great international presence at that. Yeah. We had the, the Kiwis there. The Kiwis were there, yeah. Absolutely. So it was all, the, all the royal family were there. Yeah. Pretty well all of them. Yeah. That memorial has, has changed the, the public perception and the profile of Bomber Command in, oh, a, in a positive way, which has been great. Yeah, that's good. I'm looking forward to visiting there next week. So. Yeah, we had the um, annual memorial service last weekend, last Sunday, right. yes. um, which is always uh, a moving experience, uh, but it's well supported. Does it still get many veterans going along, or are there only a handful oh, now? No, not now. We're getting a bit thin now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, but there you are, Anno Domini. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, George and Steve. It's been pleasure. a pleasure to meet you guys, and you've got a big day ahead here at the air show, yeah. so I shall leave you to... Uh... I met, I met um, quite a lot of New Zealand pilots when I was on OTU on Wellingtons. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, I don't know how, how many of them survived the war. Try, when I went out to New Zealand, I tried to find uh, names and that, but uh, without success. Were they as well behaved as the British pilots, George, or did they? Were they a bit uh, no, they, they, they were a bit, they were a bit rough. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much again. Cheers. Thank yeah. you. Lastly, during the air show, I managed to catch up with David Bremner, who was showing me around the fantastic Bristol Scout that he'd rebuilt, that had been flown by his grandfather in World War One. David and Richard Bremner were the grandchildren of Royal Naval Air Service pilot 
Francis Bremner. And together they've reproduced the Bristol Scout C, starting with a still functional Bosch starting magneto from the original aircraft that Francis Bremner had flown. During the tour of the cockpit, I suddenly thought about recording it, so I slammed on the recorder, which led into the actual interview. So this starts a bit abruptly, but go with it. David was explaining to me the difference in the Scout C as opposed to earlier models. Slightly shorter cord, uh, and I think less span, and bigger ailerons, okay. and no dihedral, and the seat was six inches further forward. Okay. Um, and uh, so when when he built the Sea Scout, he decided to redesign the fuselage, so he moved the seat back six inches, but he had to move the controls back six inches, and uh, for reasons I still haven't quite understood, that the rudder bar always had to come back six inches, and he also put these um, uh, heel troughs in, which you didn't have before. How you got into it, I have got no idea, because I mean it's difficult enough as it is with this here, but six inches further forward, and then there was nowhere to put your feet until you got them right up there. Why okay. for fuck's sake, how did you do that? <laughs> so they put the heel troughs in, and they did, you, do you know what the carry-through is? The, 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 the big strong cable that runs right across and joins the, the flying wires together. Yep. Yep. Well, that, um, that conflicts, as you can see, it conflicts with the heel troughs. Right. So they thought, well, what's more important? I think we'll have the heel troughs give up on the carriage. <laughs> yeah. So we've we fiddled it so that so that we can get both in. Okay. Um, right. And we also made a a, um, a modification to the uh, the way the um, the flying wires are attached to the wing uh, okay. to make it more secure. We we did a a load test on the original you know, setup. Yep. And it started to. Um, uh, started to give at about 3G and we, uh, we normally work with 4G minimum so uh, so we've, we've reinforced that a bit okay um, so that, that's my granddad here right um, and that's the map that he used to fly this aircraft from Imbros here the 89 miles across water to Thassos that's amazing I, I, that's the actual map uh, well, no, this is That's a copy. This is a copy. Yep. I've got the original at home. Yeah. Um, you can see it says Flight Lieutenant Bremner, Flight Sub Lieutenant Bremner up at the top there, so that was his copy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, they he'd been operating from Imbros. He got there in December uh, 1915. Yeah. Um, and I suspect probably all of the, the new pilots, they put them on the Voisin to start with because it was a welded steel fuselage. And. Um, uh, they, uh, it was more or less indestructible. So he flew that to start with, and um, he said, you know, it's that got that like a, a four-wheel undercarriage, a pusher, two-seater. And uh, he he flew it to start with, and then he did. I think on his seventh operational flight was on the afternoon of January the 18th, which was the day of the final evacuation of the British forces from Gallipoli. Okay. And I'm sure you know the story that it's a very, it was the most successful bit of the whole Gallipoli operation. Exactly, that, uh, yeah. and, and so he was attacked by um, an Eindecker and um, his observer had the Lewis gun mounted on in the front of the nacelle. Yeah. Um, 
and Grandad tried to manoeuvre the poor old voisin, but you know it hadn't got a hope in hell. And so uh, the midshipman picked up the Lewis gun, rested it on the top wing, and tried to have a go at the Eindacker that way and failed. And it had a big uh, Canton Une or Samson um, radial, waterproof radial, and the um, uh, the Eindecker punctured the the the, the, um, the water cylinder. Yep. And so he was going down. He knew he wouldn't get it back to Imbros, you know, from Dardanelles down here, back about 15 miles across the water. Yep. So he landed on the, um, uh, there was a little emergency ship at Hellis, but it was right near the front. So it, 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 you know, to start with, obviously, he was attacked by the Eindecker. Then he was, he was attacked by the anti-aircraft fire. And as he was on finals with the engine dead and putting it into this strip that he'd never seen before, he was being shot at by the Turkish artillery. And uh, amazingly, somebody took, he, he, he he was told to to get the aircraft out of the way and destroy it because they were all on their way out. And of course, he wasn't allowed to set fire to it because it would alert the Turks that there might be a problem. And he said it was really hard to uh, do any permanent damage with just a, a, no, a, a, a pickaxe or whatever it was he had to hand. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, as he landed, he was being shelled by the Turks and uh, he said that they were sort of jumping around trying to miss these shell holes and actually somebody who happened to be overhead and took this photograph I've got a photograph of the voisin set back in the revetment with the six inch no, shell holes that he, he was jumping out of wow. things. So he was on one of the last ships out of the Dardanelles and they carried on working from here he did all sorts of things mostly in 1264 he was doing submarine hunting he was doing bombing he was doing um, uh, escorting two-seaters. As I say, he had a go at an Eindeck himself once. Um, and um, and then in the... Uh, and I've never quite understood because there were no British troops on there by now, but, but, but they maintained a presence here right throughout the war. Okay. Uh, it does seem odd, doesn't yeah, it? it does. Um, but they set up this... But by this time, the uh, Greek, Greece was more or less split in two. The king was brother-in-law to the Kaiser. Prime Minister was was uh, with the Allies, and so the king let the Bulgarians into Macedonia here, and so they set up a detachment here on Thassos. Can you see the little tiny red dot? Yep. That's the only information he had about the landing strip. Okay. <laughs> and so he had to fly 90 miles across water to get to it, and. Um, uh, so he spent the rest of the war then attacking the Bulgarians here um, and, um, and then he was invalided home in the August with um, malaria and dysentery by which time 1264 was in need of a total refurbishment so she went to Art Royal and the, the Magneto was one that he'd acquired he, he, he always said that it came from um, uh, a chap called Costantini. Mayo Costantini was a famous 
pre-war racing driver. Oh, right. And he said that that, um, uh, that Mayor Costantini was, was part of the French squadron that was also operating from Thassos. Yep. And he'd managed to get hold of this German Bosch Magneto from his racing friends and offered it in exchange for bombs and ammunition to Grandad. And the Bosch Magneto was always regarded as much more reliable because it's only a single ignition with the, the 80 Rhone. Um, and so that was his personal magneto. Okay. Um, the other thing that we discovered, oh, the other thing, yeah, was that, that when we took the aircraft to Thassos, the historian said, actually, I don't think Mayo Castantini was ever on Thassos. There's no record of that. He was a pilot, but, but not at, uh, on Thassos. But, he said, there was a chap called Pierre Costantini, who was a Sicilian. He was a very good pilot, but he was a little short chap, and a French historian described him as a Sicilian pain in the arse. Because <laughs> um, he was full of himself, and, and full of bullshit, and he made, a, he, he made himself extremely unpopular. All the squadrons on the Western, French squadrons on the Western Front, they moved him around because he was such a pain in the backside. Right. And then when the Salonica Front opened up, Apparently, it was a famous place for ditching the people you didn't want. So off he went to Salonica. Very effective. I mean, he shot down one or two enemy aircraft. He got shot down himself and had to escape from enemy territory and all the rest of it. But I suspect, we don't know, that he made himself a nuisance of the Salonica squadron as well. And so when this when this detachment opened up, they thought, great! <laughs> they sent him there. And my guess is, this is all speculation, that he realized that there would be nobody here who knew him, his papers wouldn't be following him, so I thought, I'll reinvent myself as a famous racing driver. <laughs> and we think that that Magneto probably actually came from a downed German aircraft. Apparently, it was the first thing you did, because the Magnetos were all interchangeable, if you came across a, a, a shot down German aircraft, you made a beeline for the Magneto, because it was easy to remove, and you'd get good money for it. Oh, right. Yeah. Interesting. So that's where that came from. But the other thing we discovered was that the, the stick was also personalized because, as I say, it was six foot three. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the, this grip comes off a um, uh, 1940 motorcycle. Yeah. And there's a place in Kent that makes uh, the grips for you know, vintage motorcycle restorers and I, I, I found it on the website <clears throat> and Grandad's original the, 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 it's, it's cork with the plastic outer and the plastic was, was cracked and a bit damaged so I took it to him and took a stick to him and said no could you possibly um, re uh, just remold it yeah. with the original cork so we keep as much original as possible yes he said he thought that was possible so we undid that bolt which is the only original bolt on the whole aircraft yeah. and very very carefully eased it off and we found that Grandad had a two inch extension made to help his fists clear his knees oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. so they're very personalized bits all of these yeah. Yeah. So, at what point did you decide that you were going to rebuild this, your granddad's aircraft? <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> Theo grew up on Biggles. We, we've known each other for uh, 40 years, I think. Yeah. We've we built other microlights and things. Uh, we've both been hang gliding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, he'd always wanted to fly a First World War aircraft over the Somme, and he knew nobody was going to lend him one. Yeah. 
And he saw those bits, you know, on our bookshelf and said, why don't we look into it? So this was in about 2003. Um, we, uh, we went to see the only other anywhere near accurate Bristol Scout reproduction is the one that Leo Opdyke built in New York. And that's currently the Yobleton Museum. Um, if you're down that way, the Yobleton Museum's really good. Yes, I was there the other day. Oh, were you? Yeah, good. Yeah. So you've seen Leo's machine hanging up in yeah, the roof there. Yeah. So that's where we went first of all. And uh, Dave, the, the curator, put us in touch with, um, with Leo. Yeah. Uh, we got some drawings from Leo, but they weren't, they weren't particularly helpful. But he said that there was a um, Frank Barnwell's original sketchbook um, at the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society archives. So I went to London and the curator said, oh, yes, I'll get them out for you. And he got them out for me. And you open up these 1914 documents and there's a smell off the paper and it's just fantastic. And Frank Barnwell was a real artist. Um, the, the sketches are just beautiful. They tell you the information so accurately. And um, he said, the curator said, while you're there, I've had a, an email from a chap in Houston, Texas, who wants any information about the Bristol uh, monoplane. And if you find any references, could I? So I did that. And I you know, took photographs and passed them on to, to the chap in Houston, who immediately came back and said, I believe you're interested in the Bristol scout. Would you like some drawings? And he emailed across these huge, big scans. He was an engineer himself. Uh, and so we got about 95% of all the original drawings. The Bristol Scout was modified any number of times during its life. So to get the right drawings for the right model of Scout was was incredibly lucky. The D Scout was quite significantly different. They, okay. they, they altered a lot of little metal fittings and things like that. Um, and the other piece of amazing serendipity is that the uh, Leo's aircraft is actually owned by Sir George White who is the great-grandson of the founder of the Bristol Aeroplane Company. So we managed to contact him and he um, he showed us the, the parts which you can see on the table here uh, and I have to show you it because it's very very special um, and uh, it's the only copy in existence in the entire world and we don't know I mean we're in close touch with with the whites they're they're just lovely um, and uh, my guess is he found it as I say he was looking for something else and he went through the drawers of his great-grandfather's desk and there it was in the bottom drawer and um, so the only thing I can think is that, that the you'll see when you see it that it, it's it's like a coffee table book with photographs, photoshops, photographs of parts and sub-assemblies and you know, completed aircraft and things like it's absolutely immaculate. Um, and what I think is it's dated November 1915 and priced at 20 shillings. Well, in November 1915, you'd have gone to the tower if you'd sold a copy of the parts list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that uh, Sir George's brother-in-law ran a slightly idiosyncratic print works in the middle of Bristol and did all of Bristol's publicity. 
Sir George was extremely rich. It's said that he put half a million pounds into what was then the, 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 the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company before he saw a penny back. Very, very wealthy. Given that it's November 1915, I think that was a Christmas present. And uh, after Christmas, George, you know, put it in the bottom drawer of his dress and yep. forgot about it until yep. we got there. So, I mean, another astonishing piece of serendipity. And then we took the drawings to the authority here, the Light Aircraft Authority, who would have to authorize it for flight uh, in late 2007, I think. <laughs> and you had to read the book. I've probably got it more accurately there. And then, um, uh, uh, and he said, yeah, fine, looks okay to me. Um, and so we then had to take the decision whether to actually start spending money on it. Um, but thereafter, and the build process, because it, it was a, um, it was a sort of spare time project. Um, so I think that he'd been told, you know, to keep the, 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 the expense to a minimum. The original engine was a, a gnome engine that had already been dunked in the sea. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and um, so the build process is very, very simple. They didn't have specialist tools or anything, so we didn't need specialist tools to build it exactly as, as, it, as it was. Um, and uh, we just, just got on with it, and, and it was finished in 2015, which is exactly 100 years after 1264 was finished. Um, and of course, we didn't, uh, well, we had this, this business of trying to get hold of an engine. So uh, I'd asked here, and they said, yes, we've got a spare Roan engine, um, but you can't have it because we need it as a spare, which is fine. So we asked Kermit Weeks, and uh, he has a typical sort of collector's syndrome. So he has a dozen Roan engines, but, but they're, they're absolutely not, not for, for anybody else to use. Um, and then John Munn here suggested we get hold of Gene DeMarco, and I... I emailed Gene and said, no, would you be interested in helping? And he sent back a one-word email saying, maybe. And then later that year, he brought the RE8 and the Albatross across to here. They flew them here once. And uh, after that, he, he basically interviewed me. We spent about half an hour and he talked about, you know, how, what, what standards we're using to build it, how accurate it was, all that kind of a stuff. Yep. And at the end of that, um, you know, we, we, he, he said, yes, we never got any paperwork. We, we did a deal. It wasn't a money deal. It was, it was bits and the parts list and drawings and things so they could build their own. Um, and in 2014, you know, we got our engine. Um, and I think you, you heard me say that we, when we went over there in 2014 to see it on the stand there at uh, Masterton, um, and uh, <laughs> very special moment. And uh, and then thank God, you no, know, with all the hoo-ha afterwards, they 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 didn't investigate any further back than 2016. <laughs> so so our engine was safe, and um, and then it first flew Gene. Part of the deal was that Gene wanted to fly it first, yeah. which he did uh, with Bevan, and they came over to Vista, and it flew absolutely beautifully. 
um, and then Dodge did the rest of the test flying and there was absolutely no problem. He finished the whole of the test program in about two and a half hours of flying. Um, we, we did forward CG, aft CG, um, uh, he, he did all sorts of, you know, he did a full, you know, full five minute climb, absolutely faultless. Um, and of course we didn't know whether we'd be allowed to fly he might have said well look it's far too difficult for a low hours you know, ordinary pilot to fly no he said it's fine so uh, he flew it here for the first time for the Octa show, October show in 2015 um, and you know, Theo and I were, were sat down the end there watching it going overhead oh <laughs> <laughs> And shortly after that, Dodge said, well, why don't you get your display rating? And I thought, what the fuck? <laughs> we'd, we'd flown it just after that, actually. Yes, it was the same week. We took it back down to Vista, and Theo and I, no, no Theo did, my brother and I both flew it. Um, and then during that winter, he said, well, why don't you get your display rating? And then so in the spring of 2016, um, I did my first display here. Immediately after that, we packed it up and sent, took it down to Brooklands, where um, uh, Prince Michael uh, presented us with an award for the. Uh, we were the preservationist of the year in under here. I think we still got the. There we oh, are. Yes. For the Transport Trust. Um, and we were. It was the best award we've had. The the, the actual trophy. Uh, it's for all types of transport, yep. uh, and the original um, trophy was was uh, given to the chap who brought back the SS Great Britain from the Falkland Islands. Do you know the story? Um, I know about the ship, but I don't know it was Falkland. Yeah, she was she was left as a hulk in the Falkland Islands okay. for Yonks, yes. and I can't what his name is now, but he he he, he shipped her back on a barge, uh, and no, they, you know she's now in the original dock in which she was built in Bristol. Right. Um, and um, so the, the, the trophy is a silver model of the SS Great Britain about this long and we were so sorry to have to give it back. Um, not least because we actually have a family connection with the SS Great Britain. My five times great uncle, James Bremner, recovered her. She went aground in Northern Ireland and he recovered her off the beach and got her, got her afloat again. So we, we feel a, a family connection with the Great Britain. So that was that. And then immediately after that, we packed her up again and took her off to, to, to Thassos. Um, and we did get to fly it, but it was so marginal. It was in there was only one we had to take off at dawn because the wind was getting up and the direction was was had to be straight down the strip and we flew it for about 10 minutes i'd filled up with fuel because i thought while we're here i'd only get the one chance to fly i wanted to get to sort of feel what it was like for yep. granddad to fly all that kind of a thing yep. and as i took off the turbines were so bad you see the little overflow on the petrol can. Yes, I was being yes. splashed with petrol from that. Wow. <laughs> just about two meters away. So, so I, 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 I thought, well, I'll get above the hill because there's a, there's a hill up upwind, and I yeah. thought, well, if I get above that, I'll get out the road. And it was just as bad up there. I thought, fuck this. As soon as uh, 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 you know, the wind's going to change direction any minute, and then we really are stuffed. Yes. Yeah, and uh, so I got it back down again, and we'd had ten minutes flying, and then on the way back. We'd been asked to take part in the commemoration of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Okay. And 
uh, we were sort of token French aircraft because of the cockades on the side. They couldn't get a French aircraft to take part. But John Munn and a chap called Rob Galleus had flown the Albatross and the BE-2 from England across the channel, for Christ's sake, <laughs> to Albert. And we all met up there. And on the day, you know, with Prince William and Kate and the whole shooting match there and tens of thousands of people, um, uh, and the wind was like this. It was just, it was no hope. And I can't tell you how flat we felt, Theo and I. We went back to the hotel that, that, that evening and we'd gone all that way, you know, driven the thing in the trailer all the way out there. Yeah. We just felt so flat. And then, um, uh, and then uh, the second, we, we had a few days. Um, I particularly I had a family connection again with the song because my granddad's cousin, first cousin after whom I'm named, he's another David Bremner, and there he is. Oh, yes. So he was the second lieutenant in the border regiment and he was fatally injured. I mean, I can, if you want, I can send you all of these digitally. Um, but it just acts as a reminder. And he was at what is now Newfoundland Park uh, and he was fatally injured. So I wanted to commemorate him. So on the 2nd of July, I flew, I took off from Albert. It's the only time I've flown out of gliding range um, around the Teakval Memorial, then up to the Newfoundland Park, which is not far away, with his photograph in the cockpit with me. Um, and they're back to Albert. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I got back and the weather was absolutely gorgeous and so we got Theo in the cockpit um, and he flew it as well so he can now say he's flown a first world war aircraft over the over the Somme. Right and that's where it all started. And that was where it all yeah, started fantastic. so um, yeah it, it was just an amazing amazing the whole thing has just just been such an amazingly uh, serendipitous you know, so many things just fell into place. Uh, and of yeah. course, um, you've been out to New Zealand and seen the Scout that mm. is flying at Ardmore. It's a yeah. little bit different from this. So. Yes, it is. I, I, I just, I think it's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. why go to all that trouble to build a non-accurate replica? It was built in the seventies, wasn't it? Herb Harkey, I, I think. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah. Uh, I have tried sitting in it. We went to see Frank, um, uh, and I have tried, and, and the cockpit's just far too small. There's no way I can I can ever fly that, which um, I'm sure he wouldn't let me anyway. But uh, um, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a shame, you know, because it's so easy. It's it's such an easy build. This you know, it's very very straightforward. We no special tools, nothing like that. It's amazing that there's not more people building them. There's a lot of people out there building World War One replicas. So. Yes, I agree. I mean, there are lots of reasons. Um, first is it's a very very easy build. You by the time you get to the late First World War, which of course is very popular because people have you know, read about all the aces. Yeah. They want to do an SE five. In fact, Leo Opdyke wanted to build a Bristol fighter okay. uh, and was talked out of it. Uh, and they said, "Well, do a Bristol Scout instead." And he did a really good job. That one at Yeovilton is is is. I mean, Leo, as you know, he died earlier this year, yeah. um, but I've been to see him twice. Um, and um, just huge respect for him. Well, I've seen the um, uh, the basement where he built it. I mean, I can't stand upright in it. It's, right. it's okay. incredibly <laughs> small. Um, but you know, he he, he did a, he did a, 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 a really good job. Um, 
and um, there were some of the drawings. He 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 had a an experienced aircraft builder redraw some of the original drawings for him, and they came in really handy for us. Um, but um, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a very very simple build, and actually, uh, I mean, it's it was it was a game changer. I think, as I say, the, early in the war, particularly the British, didn't encourage sort of personality, um, no, the, the, the trait of personality, whatever you call it, cult of personality. So there wasn't a lot told about it, um, and they only got onto it later in the war. So you get your, you know, your, your Mannix and, and McCuddens and Albert Ball and people like that. Albert Ball got his first victory in a Bristol Scout. Um, but the thing was that this was, you know, it was designed in late 1913, flew in February 1914, and it was the first aircraft that demonstrate, demonstrated it was practical to chase after an enemy aircraft with a fixed gun. It was the fastest aircraft for the first 18 months of the war, and um, it was, it was the, the really important thing was that it was aerobatic, it was very, very manoeuvrable. Uh, with those big ailerons here yep. that are really effective and work, they're not they're not as good as a modern aircraft, but they are astonishingly good for that period when most of them wing, were wing warping. Right. You could loop it. You could roll off the top of a loop. You could spin it. You could flat spin it. Okay. Um, all of those things you could do, and people did, and they did it deliberately. They flat spun it down to about 500 foot and recovered for quite wow. <laughs> um, but what it meant was that you could you could sensibly go chasing after an enemy aircraft, and whatever he did, you could follow without worrying. You didn't have to think about. Whereas other high-speed aircraft, you know, if you got, got if you flew it out of balance, you were dead. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With this one, that's not the case, and so they very quickly started adding armament to it. This is Grandad's solution, as you know. Um, uh, uh, um, um, Lana Hawker had it firing outwards like this. Yes. Um, if you go to the panel down the end there, there's about at least seven different ways people mounted guns on it. Though sometimes on the top up here, there's a uh, an Egyptian chap out in Egypt who fitted the uh, fitted uh, brackets on the rib here yep. to about here with the Lewis gun on the top with a sort of hinged um, thing here so you, you could you could bring that back and you could hinge that in to change the drum right and right. so he would have had if you think that an un unsynchronized gun has about twice the rate of fire of a synchronized gun he's got two Lewis guns he's got twice the firepower of a sop with camel oh wow okay you think about yeah. it it's two unsynchronized guns yeah. um, and uh, in this case, you know, Grandad had an unsynchronized gun here, and you accepted the fact that about 10% of the bullets end up in your own propeller. Yeah. Um, but, but it's because the Scout was such a capable, competent aircraft um, that, um, um, you know, it, I, I always think that, you know, because it was called a Scout, all the other ones, as you know, the Sopwith Pup was officially a Scout, yeah. the Camel was officially a Scout, the SE-5A is officially a Scout, and, and they're sort of named after this. This was what gave everybody the idea that that was the way to go, rather than the two-seater with the, the gun on the front. Um, and uh, But I th if you ask Sir George 
White, who is the most fantastic source of knowledge about the Bristol Aeroplane Company. I mean, they really were a very, very remarkable organisation, all family. Um, uh, Sir George died, I think, in 1916. His son Stanley took over um, uh, uh, until 1954, uh, and it was a, basically a family concern all the way through. But no, to, to manage throughout the First World War, when they were really short of people because everybody had buggered off to the war, um, and then the huge contraction in 1918 and then trying to keep flying going between the wars, and then the enormous build-up in 1939, and then the huge contraction in 1945. Um, and so, you know, he, he is a great, great proponent of the Bristol Aeroplane Company. But he said that his grandfather, Stanley White, who was chairman most of the time, and Frank Barnwell, the designer, were both of them very shy individuals. They hated publicity. It was really, really hard to get an interview with them. Whereas Sopwith was a good businessman, knew the value of publicity. Um, and so, you know, his, his products get, you know, get the attention kind of a thing. But, uh, no, I, you know, one of the things that I hope that comes out of this is that we can sort of tell the story of, of uh, as I say, particularly the Bristol Scout, um, because it, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's such an important, um, you know, stepping stone, if you like, in the development of, of fighter aircraft. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, David. It's, okay, well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Dave, and we will certainly come and see you uh, uh, when we're over in November through to about February. Yeah, wings over wire wrapper, I'll see you there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping <clears throat> we might be able, because we know John Lanham quite well, yep. uh, we might try and um, you know, get a bit of a tour around, go and have a sit in some of the other aircraft. I have sat in the, in the Newport they've got there, which looks really nice. I would love to fly that. Because <laughs> Grandad flew a Newport 11 as well, so uh, that would be a really nice comparison to make, but I'm sure they won't. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks a lot. Good. Okay. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.